hope that the Lord's been blessing you and keeping you so far in this um, this new year. Like Pastor Richard um, said, we're still in our we're in our second week of our series on our core um, values, and today we'll be talking about courageous um, servanthood. Um, and in our core values uh, vision, vision script, we define that as our love for God and neighbor gives us the courage to reach beyond our comfort zone. The interest of others drive us to take risk as an act of service. Today we're going to be talking about unity in the church and how divisions in the church can restrict or move us away from how God has called us to serve on one another. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, reading from the Christian Standard Bible. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 10, starting at verse 10, it reads like this. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. Somebody say Chloe's people. That there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or um, that can be translated Peter. Or I can be, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus, beyond that I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Somebody say preach the gospel. Not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will be emptied of its effect. Father, we praise you and thank you for another day. Father, I pray that you would give us your spirit so that we would be hearers and doers of your word. Lord, make it my ambition and my ambition alone to please you. Lord, I need you, and we need you. Strengthen your saints and save souls today. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. You may be seated. Every single day at Cannon Street Elementary School growing up, we started our day 
with a pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Me and my wife and a few friends were laughing about that pledge a few weeks ago. We would stand up from our seats, put our hands over our hearts, direct our eyes to a flag, and pledge allegiance to a nation. It's, it's interesting when I think about it as I grew older that there was a patriotism that infused our school system. This allegiance, what does allegiance call us to? Allegiance is a commitment, it's a loyalty that I'm committing myself to something and I must preserve it or protect it at all costs. We pledged allegiance to nation, country, and flag. But it's interesting as we live in this country, in this society, that it seems like allegiance to flag and nation are oftentimes the main source of division in our communities. Racial division, political affiliation, the love of wealth, the desire for freedom at the expense of others. This allegiance has often led to a division that has led to destructive behaviors and patterns in our relationships. This type of allegiance never creates the liberty and the justice it promises. This reminds us, church, that a allegiance to the wrong things never unify us because they exalt ourselves over others. Martin Luther King, he knew something about this type of misplaced allegiance. He was a pastor, a political and social activist, but he was also a shepherd of people who were segregated in many ways in this country, but also faced divisions within the churches that he pastored. He called out the classism in churches that were fixated on upward mobility at the expense of others. He said that the church can be paralyzed with classism. Types of churches like this, he says that this type of church, it tragically fails to recognize that worship at its best is a social experience in which people from all levels of life come together to affirm their oneness and their unity under God. Allegiance to idols always leads to division and division always leads to destruction. This is what one person would say about idols. I idols always demand things of you that you can only give them by exploiting other people. The idol of sex in singleness and in marriage can often lead to using or mismanaging God's gift at the expense of someone else's needs. The idol of money 
can lead us to pursue wealth in ways that lead us to manipulating and forcing our hand at making it at the expense of those who are in need. Idols always lead to some type of abuse. And Paul is shepherding and caring for this gifted church, this church with spiritual power, this church with gifts, this church that has been saved by the gospel of Jesus, set apart for God's mission. But as he thanks God for them in the first part of chapter one, he now has to address the divisions within the church. He said in verse nine, he says, God is faithful and you were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He reminds them through God's grace, they have fellowship with the son, but now he has to teach them that being in fellowship with the son does not mean that the son lives in isolation. That the son does not live in a one bedroom, one bathroom apartment that has no space for others. Growing up, as I've gotten older, I've realized there was a cultural expectation when you came to my grandmama's house. We would go to my grandmama's house and we'd go through the back porch and then we would go through the living room and we would pass bedrooms to get to my grandmama's room. And as I got older, I realized that there was this expectation for guests that would come into the, to the house when boyfriends or girlfriends or family friends would come into the house you may be coming to see my grandmother, but when you walk in the house, there are other people on that porch and in that kitchen and in that living room that you have to speak to when you come into the house. Not only do you have to speak to the people in the house, you have to greet the people in the house. Not only do you greet the people in the house, you have to hug the people in the house and ask them how they're doing. I, I realized as I got older that there was an expectation that even though you're coming to see one person, you still have to speak and care for everybody else in the house. And this is what Paul is teaching the Corinthian church. This is the Father's house. And you come here to see Jesus. But when you come to see Jesus, that does not mean that you don't serve the other people in the house. Just because you're coming to see Jesus and worship him and praise him and give him your all, that does not mean that you can neglect or ignore and not care for the other people in the house. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many mansions. That he has a family that he's called us to. Just because we have fellowship with the son does not mean that we are not called to serve his people. Being in fellowship means... Being in fellowship with Jesus means that we live in unity with his family. Paul, he addresses the divisions in the church, but he first appeals to them with love. Paul knows, church, just as we know in Atlanta, as we know in our lives with the temptations we face, Paul knows that it's hard to live in a world you don't belong to. He hears the problems in the church all throughout 1 Corinthians, and he applies the gospel to their pressing issues. First part of this passage that we'll cover today, Paul reminds the church, he teaches the church that divisions in the church 
are a reflection of an allegiance to the world. Verse 10, he says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, that you would say the same things, agreeing what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and you would be united with the same understanding and same conviction. The Apostle Paul, he begins his exhortation with an appeal to change. He does not appeal to them based on his apostolic authority that he establishes in verse 1, but on a family connection. My brothers and sisters, I appeal to you, I urge you, I beg of you to stop fighting with one another. He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the name the name where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, to the glory of God the Father. He appeals as brothers and sisters under the authority of Jesus. This teaches us that unity is established when the right authority is acknowledged in the church. He's saying that there are divisions among you because you're living under different types of authority. But because we are brothers and sisters, we have the same authority and that's found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He appeals to them based on their family connection. As an apostle, Paul has a different responsibility in the church, but as brothers and sisters, they live under the same authority. When we do not live under the same authority, we are governed by other loyalties, other devotions, other commitments. And he explains this is why we have divisions within the church. Verse 11, he says, it's, he says it's been reported to me by Chloe's household that there's rivalry among you. I, I like Chloe's household. Chloe has a testimony for us this morning. Chloe's report shows us that she is concerned about the preservation and the restoration of unity within the church. When Chloe's household hears about the divisions within the church. She does not gossip about what's going on in the church. She does not hide what's going on in the church. She exposes the division in order for there to be unity within the church. I call Chloe and her household holy snitches. <laughs> they are the informants within the gospel who are not concerned about how they look. They're concerned about glory and concerned about the glory of God expressed in unity. So they're willing to confront the division through communicating the division to Paul. They're not concerned about what people think. They're not concerned about looking like they're nosy or judgmental. They are concerned about the gospel being preserved and proclaimed in the church. Church, Chloe's household reminds us it challenges many of us today, where some of us in the church, we think that we are empathetic, but in ways we're actually enabling behaviors that are not from the Lord. Some of us have twisted the language in our culture to avoid hard conversations within the church because of our own comforts. 
And as I say this now, I want to say it with sensitivity and let me preface what I'm about to say. All of us need safe people in the church. All of us need people we can go to with our issues and our problems and they hold space for us and they hold the information we share with integrity and they care for us and they walk and they talk with us and they minister to us and they are faithful to walk with us and help us in this journey. All of us need safe people. But oftentimes, we've twisted that language of safety to avoid unity in the church. We use that language of safety for some of us to avoid responsibility for sin. Many of us, church, when we say we want to be safe, what we really mean is I want to surround myself with people I can be safe with in order to hide my sin. What I'm really saying is I want to surround my people I'm safe with that will never hold me accountable for the divisions or the allegiances that I have other than Jesus. What we're saying is I want to surround myself with people who will never ask me or call me to repentance or tell me the truth or call me to confess sin or reconcile with brothers and sisters. Some of us want to surround ourselves with safe people so that we can continue to do whatever we want to do. But Chloe's report shows us, church, that preserving unity requires us to confront division. I don't want to get it twisted on this passage because some of us are reporting information in the church that does not belong to us. Some of us report information within the church not to help people but to shape narratives within the church that lead to more division. Some of us have biases that shape the information we share. Some of us make judgments with impartial information that lead to more chaos and division in the church. But Chloe's report is not a means to divide the church but to confront division in order to restore unity within the body. This is a easy application for us this week as we walk in community with other people. We can ask this question to one friend. What do you see in my life that's pleasing to the Lord? But also, what is one thing in my life that's not pleasing to the Lord? And are you willing to pray for me and walk with me in this process? That our sanctification is happening in community, we are active participants in one another's sanctification, and we are called to expose the divisions in love in order for us to live out the unity God has called us to. There's rivalry in the church. James 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 would say it like this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not that there are desires at war within you? Paul is saying what's going on in relationship is a reflection of what's going on inside of you. Idolatry shows up in division because we cannot serve two masters. He says, one of you says, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Christ. As, as I read this, it, it seems like in the mind of the Corinthians that the servants 
of God are in competition with the Savior. Paul may have a connection and may have relationship with some in Corinth because he planted the church. You can read Acts 18. He spent a year and a half at the church ministering and planting the church and preaching the gospel so some of the members of this church might be close to Paul. Apollos was a powerful, intellectual preacher who preached with prophetic power and was a great apologist that refuted the Jews at the defense of the gospel. Peter, we don't have any recollection that he even visited Corinth, but he was prominent in the minds of Jews because of his role in sharing the gospel with the Jews. The church is saying, I belong or I follow these leaders in the church. This language of belonging and following, this is political language that they used when campaigns were happening in Corinth. And Paul is saying, you are boasting in leaders, but you're boasting in the wrong thing. They are not celebrating the different ways that these leaders serve in the body. They are comparing them based on their preferences and based on their resume as ministers. This community somehow has learned, church, that their preferences determine relationships. The, the community has learned and defined Christianity not based on a sole commitment to Christ, but on their cliques. They've committed to the church based on the giftedness of leaders and not growing in godliness under the leadership God has given them. This church is attracted to leaders not based on their godliness, not based on their called to lead and serve alongside them, they are connected based on preference. We see in this passage that comparison and competition kill community. Comparison elevates servants of Christ to saviors in the church. And this is so important for us to think about and reflect on as a family of God Church, we have to be reminded, and we'll see this all throughout 1 Corinthians, as God has gifted this church with wisdom and speech and knowledge. He's gifted the church with leaders. He's gifted the church with sex and, and marriage and communion and um, freedom and all of these things that Paul will, will address. But we'll notice in 1 Corinthians that oftentimes the things and the people that God gives us can become barriers to the gospel. We can be so consumed with the gifts and the resumes of others that we worship and are consumed with the gifts instead of worshiping the giver. These idols that show up in our lives as we elevate other things other than what God has called us to shows us where our allegiances lie. All an idol is is this. An idol is something that God has given, given you that you've used to replace God that you've used to worship instead of worshiping the God who gave it to you. He says that you're saying you belong to other people, other leaders, other ministries based on your own allegiances and preferences that contradict what I've called you to. Even one would say I belong to Christ. This is a contemporary application that I feel like Paul may share with us 
in the 21st century when we hear, I belong to Christ. Some can say that I belong to Christ without being united with the body of Christ. Some of us boast in a personal relationship with Christ that has no corporate responsibility. Church isolation preaches to the world another gospel. Because as Paul says, is Christ divided? Private and personal encounters with Christ require a public commitment to Christ and his body so that we can grow in oneness even in the midst of the messiness, even in the midst of the ugliness of unity, even in the ugliness of division. God has called us to a oneness and we cannot reflect that oneness in isolation. Paul says, Corinthians, what you want determines how you love. Your preferences are dictating your relationships, and your idolatry is a source of division. He shows them where their allegiances lie. He's calling them to live under the authority of Jesus Christ with their brothers and sisters to reflect a gospel unity that would accurately depict who Jesus is in the world. He speaks to the divisions, and now he moves forward and speaks to what they need to be unified. He says unity within the church begins with an allegiance to the cross. He says, is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in Paul's name? He asked these rhetorical questions to expose the foolishness of their divisions. He goes on and he praises God that he didn't baptize many of them. He praises them, he, he praises God because he only baptized a few people. It seems that in the Corinthian church, they're boasting in who baptized them. And Paul is challenging their understanding of baptism. Paul says, as I think about it, as I I recollect, I I remember baptizing two of y'all, and then I baptized another household, but I don't really recall who else I baptized. Paul is saying, I don't even remember who I baptized because it really does not matter. Paul is saying, church, you are boasting about who baptized you, and you're not boasting in the one who you were baptized into. You're not boasting in the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and power. You're boasting in the one who baptized you for the sake of your preferences and your allegiances. Paul is teaching them that who baptized you does not matter in comparison to who you've been baptized you. You've been baptized into Christ. Baptism for this church was a way to boast, to build status and platform. They are saying they boast about baptism because of who baptized them. They were boasting in this because it gave them a deep feeling that they were better than their brothers and their sisters based on who they were connected to. He's saying that your closeness with certain people 
makes you feel more important than your brothers and sisters that you are supposed to be unified with. This passage challenges our relationships in the body. Because oftentimes we have to think about this from, the, from both sides. That church, if we are elevating certain people in the church, it's really dehumanizing and oppressive in the church. Because if you are elevating people in the church for your own gain, you're actually using people as pawns in an agenda to look better in front of other people. Your elevation of people is not really about that person, it's about what you want from people. He said that you've come and you're boasting in baptism not because you love Jesus, but because you want to boast in your connections to feed your self-image. Why is that happening in Corinth? Why is that happening in our churches? And I say this as a reflection, and I want to be sensitive as I say this with pastoral care. Many of us elevate people because of our own self-hatred. Some of us surround ourselves with people who look important and seem important and significant because we don't feel important and we don't feel significant within the body. Many of us surround ourselves with people who may look important in a certain way to protect ourselves with what we really feel about ourselves. We want to be connected to power because we feel powerless. Some of us want to be around those who are impressive because we don't want to pay attention to how we really think God has made us in this world. We don't want to pay attention to how we see ourselves in our own self-understanding because we feel like we're inferior because we don't have certain talents or gifts that other people have. And I want to encourage you this morning, you do not have to compare yourself to others. You do not have to compete with others that you see with certain platforms or who have certain roles in the church. God has given you all a gift to stir up in the church, to flame that gift, fan that flame of that gift in the church, to serve others in the church. You have a contribution, and God has wired you and saved you in order for you to serve within the church based on your giftedness, not based on the comparison of someone else's. Some of us have come to Cornerstone for reasons. Amen. God bless that child. I just, look at that. I'm getting an amen somewhere. Praise the Lord. Some of us come to church for other reasons. Some of us have come to Cornerstone because we saw somebody who was influential or prominent and have powerful ministries on social media and we wanted to be connected to the church because we saw something online. Some of us come to church because we hear the great singing and the beautiful songs and the praise and the worship. Some of us come to the church because of the kids ministry and we have a moment of relief so that we can come and get to a place where we don't have to necessarily be with our kids and have space to, and that's a blessing, amen to freely worship within the church. Some of us have come for these reasons, and we praise God that you are here. 
We praise God that you saw somebody that you follow and you respect online and you, and you felt led to come to visit Cornerstone. And we praise God that you're here and we want you to enjoy your time. We want you to be a part of our family. But church, some of the reasons why we come can never be the reasons why we stay. Because the reasons that we stay have to be connected to our commitment. And our commitment cannot be, be based on our preferences or our desires that are disconnected from the body. Our commitment has to be based on our allegiance and connection to the cross. Our allegiance has to be connected based on our unity within the body that I come here to participate and contribute to what God is doing in the body. And I'm willing to expose and acknowledge the divisions, but I'm also here committed to make things better within the church. The reasons we come have to be connected to the ways God has called us to commit. Paul is not saying that baptism is not important. Baptism is a command from Jesus, Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've called you to observe. Baptism is a public announcement of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, standing in solidarity to him and his people. Baptism is a metaphor for the crucifixion and the resurrection, being immersed in the waters of death and raised in the newness of life by the power of God. And many of our brothers and sisters across the world know the implications of this allegiance. I was reading this past week in Bangladesh where believers are being baptized in secret because they know if they are baptized in public that will lead to division, that will lead to persecution in their communities. That their families, if they heard it, they have pledged their allegiance to Christ and renounced allegiance to idols and other gods that will lead to them being abandoned by their families. That if they know if they were publicly baptized, that would lead to other extremist religions trying to kill them and hurt them because of their faith. They know that it would lead to political leaders ostracizing them from community and stripping them from their privileges in their society. Baptism is important. It's a glorious ritual, and God has called all of us to participate in this practice, but baptism does not replace the gospel. Paul is saying if you knew, actually if you knew what baptism really means, there wouldn't be any divisions in the church. Because baptism symbolizes dying to yourself. And because if you're dying to yourself, that will reshape gospel community because you would not be relating to your brothers and sisters based on your needs, but based on your common commitment to Christ. Paul says that, I don't even remember who I baptized. It does not matter who I baptized. And God did not even call me to baptism. He says, I came to preach the gospel. I came to preach the gospel of the cross. One scholar would say it like this, as Paul talks about, I didn't come to preach the gospel with eloquent speech and Wisdom, he says this, this one scholar says, in Hellenistic culture, perceptions of one's rhetorical cultural wisdom are an important determinant of status. Thus, the divisions 
were rivalries for the status of having the wisest teachers. But Paul said, I didn't come here for all of that. I didn't come here to perform for you based on your preference or your desire for status. I came to preach the gospel. He's reminding them, church, that you are attracted to people who have a following based on their giftedness, not based on their godliness. You are attracted to people who exercise their gifts and have platforms who come into your spaces and they are intellectual and eloquent, but you don't know they don't have real power because it's disconnected from the cross. We are so quick, quick to give our attention to people solely based on their giftedness. We've elevated spiritual gifts over spiritual maturity. Maturity, church, is not seen in how well somebody speaks and what platforms they have or their influence in the world. Maturity is seen in a cruciform life. That I don't live by myself, selfish ambitions, but I consider others as more important than myself. He's saying without the cross, nobody with gifts has power. It does not matter what gifts you have if you don't have the power behind it, and that power is found in the cross. He says, I preach this gospel to you, this cruciform gospel. To be a successful Christian is not seen in your bank account and how you raise your kids and your affiliations. No, a successful Christian is a cruciform Christian. He says, you are boasting in baptism, but I boast in the one who was baptized in suffering. You're boasting in self-image, but I preach the one who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You're boasting in your exaltation, but I boast in the one who was humiliated so that I might be exalted with him. You boast in your status and your approval, but I preach the one who came to his own and his home did not receive him. You boast in the one, you're boasting in who you belong to, but I preach the one who said, if I be high and lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. You're boasting in speakers, but I preach the one who did not persuade with speech, but was silent before his accusers and never said a mumbling word, who was bruised for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities. You boast in power, but I preach the one who laid down his life for the sheep. You boast in your divisions, but I preach the one who broke down the walls of hostility in order to make a people who are not a people a people. You boast in human power, but I preach the one who gave up his life but had the power to take it up again. And when he got up from that grave, he gave us power through the power of the Spirit. That's real power. And church, we don't have no power if we don't preach the cross in all of our endeavors and all of our goals for justice and serving our community and our ministries. All of those things are good and God has called us to those things, but they have no power without the cross. We're going to evangelize this year and continue to meet our neighbors and try to meet their felt needs. But when we meet people, if we don't preach the cross, we ain't got, we ain't got no power. Paul said it like this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now I live this life 
in the flesh and by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation first to the Jew and then the Greek. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because one day when I was lost, he died upon that cross. And I know it was the blood for me. You've been saved by grace. This is not of your doing. It's a gift from God. Not based on your work that any man could boast. Praise God for the cross. Worship God for the cross. Honor our Lord and Savior for the cross.